If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible or you want to borrow or take one of the paper Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you, uh, you can find Proverbs chapter 10 on page 308. If you're new to church or you're visiting and haven't been in a while, uh, anytime you would go to a church, I'm sure that any person, whether they're experienced in church or not, comes understanding that that we're going to pray to God the Father, we're going to sing and worship together in song, and then this is the part of the uh, of our gathering every week where we open um, the Bible, and um, it's my goal to teach uh, from Scripture in a way that um, that helps us to understand and helps us to put it into practice so that we may become more and more like Jesus. That's our goal every time we gather to open the Word that we may uh, read it and that God may speak to us through it and that we may, by hearing from God, uh, He may give us wisdom and discernment that we may live our life in such a way that resembles Jesus Christ. And to that end, let me say a prayer for us, and then we will jump into Proverbs chapter 10. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, We thank You that, according to Isaiah, You send it out for a purpose, uh, that the Word of God will go out to accomplish that for which you have sent it. That just as the rain and the snow goes out to water the earth, so also your word. We also thank you that your word is food to us, that it is bread. Uh, It is um, that which satisfies us, that gives us um, the ability to know you intimately. And we pray that we would um, hold your word high in our own lives, as well as as a congregation, that we would seek to follow you uh, as your word describes, as you reveal yourself through your word. We pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, that we may know Jesus Christ, uh, that we may understand the gospel, and that we may have life in him today. We pray uh, your blessing on the reading of your word, as it says in Revelation 1-3, blessed are those who hear and read the words of this prophecy. And we pray that we would add nothing to it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever come to a crossroads in your life? Maybe a time when you needed to make a a really big decision. A decision that would take you uh, down one way and have its own set of consequences. Or a decision that would take you in another direction with its set of consequences. I grew up in a college town um, in Norman, Oklahoma. The University of Oklahoma uh, pretty much dominated our town's life. I think we had like 70,000 people in our town. And then when students were there, there were an additional 40 or so thousand students um, on campus. Um, As a kid, my parents worked there. And so I would take my bike and ride around the fraternities and ride around. There was a cheerleading camp there every summer. So uh, we would always go, uh, you know, just encourage the cheerleaders and um, and so we would spend a lot of time there and uh, and I knew the ins and outs of every part of that campus uh, whether for good or bad uh, in high school all of us had older siblings that went to the University of Oklahoma and uh, all of us had as a junior I think I went on a, a ski trip with a fraternity a group of 10 or 12 fraternity guys as a junior in high school and so we were always Uh, looking forward to being a part of campus life in high school. 
And then God intervened in my life. I became a Christ follower my junior year of high school, and, uh, and he changed the entire path and direction of my future with my calling into, uh, to be a, a Christ follower. Then my, my senior year, I grew in my faith, but it was still my plan to attend the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I visited one or two other schools, but it was still my goal. And so the, the week before school started, when all the fraternities were going through rush and were about to pass out bids to their different fraternities, um, I had not participated in any of that, but had planned on uh, being a part of some of that um, festivities that week. And then I walked into one of the fraternity houses, and in the basement, I saw something like 50 cases of beer just stacked up into a, a big wall. And, uh, and I realized in that moment that this, this would be a disastrous decision for someone who had just given their life to Christ. And I left that night early, I went home, and I, I prayed about it. And, uh, and the next morning, I called uh, a little Baptist Bible school in Arkansas that I had visited a year or so earlier and just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to drive down there today, and if you can get me into school, that would be great. <laughs> this was a few days before school started, and he said, get in the car and just come, and we'll do whatever we can do um, along the way. And so it was a six-hour drive uh, down there, and I had all my things packed in one trunk and one suitcase, and uh, I just showed up, and they gave me a room, and um, uh, after I unpacked everything, I walked downstairs, and I had a Young Life t-shirt on, and uh, met a guy in the, um, in the lobby named Jeremy. Jeremy has been a friend to me uh, for all this time, and he was a Bible major as well, and he's been a friend of this church uh, as well. Um, you've heard many Jeremy stories, whether you know it or not, over the years. But it changed the course of my life. God called me into ministry at that Bible school. Um, ten or so of my closest friends today are all ministers and, and in gospel ministry that were in those same classes in that little town of Arkadelphia, Arkansas. It was a crossroads that I faced. Uh, a day that I needed to make a critical decision. Either go to the University of Oklahoma and, and live the life that I had just been redeemed from and stumble as a Christ follower or make this faith decision at the last moment to attend a different school altogether. And I can um, say in hindsight how grateful I am to God uh, that he laid it on my heart and brought that conviction in the moment at that SIGEP uh, house in that basement when I stared at uh, either a future that was disastrous and destructive um, or I could make a different decision. Have you ever come to a crossroads like that? Have you ever had to make a decision as to whether you would follow Jesus Christ and experience life or follow your sin nature or maybe a fleshly decision and pursue a way of destruction? Now listen, I've done both. Um, there have been times, even as a Christ follower, where I've made poor decisions. But all of us face these crossroads and all of us come to a position in life where we need wisdom for skillful living. And that's what Proverbs is about. Proverbs continually places before us a choice. Choose the way of wisdom and life or choose the way of foolishness and destruction. When you think about a proverb, you think about these sort of short 
pithy statements. Uh, But as we learned last summer when we walked through Proverbs, we learned that chapters 1 through 9, both in content and structure, really form the introduction to the Proverbs proper. Chapters 1 through 9 are an introduction. They set up the major themes, my son and the way of fool and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapters 1 through 9 and their um, long teaching uh, sessions toward the Son, they introduce and help us understand how to apply chapters 10 through 30. Uh, 31 is a separate chapter altogether, um, uh, and we covered that last summer when we looked at the, the woman of virtuous character in chapter 31. But the main section, chapters 10 through 30, It's hard for us to fully understand them unless we understand the introduction part of chapters 1 through 9. Chapters 1 through 9, content and structure, functions as the introduction to Proverbs themselves. And there are a few keys that you pick up in chapters 1 through 9, and I just want to review a couple of those quickly so that we can understand 10 through 30. One of the keys revealed in chapters 1 through 9 is that wisdom and foolishness scream at you. Uh, They cry out in the streets, and they both have a different path, and they're both imploring you to follow them. You think we kind of stumble into foolishness, or we might even stumble into godliness, but it's not true. Um, Proverbs presents those two paths with two people standing at the roadway, crying out to you, don't go that way, go this way. Both of them rival each other. Just look at chapter 9 really quick. Uh, You can probably even see it if you just skim it and look at the, the two headings that your Bible might provide for you. One might say the way of wisdom, one might say the way of folly. But if you look at chapter 9, um, chapter 9 summarizes uh, some of what was in chapters 1 through 8. Uh, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. And she sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread. Drink of the wine that I have mixed and leave your simple ways and live. There is an invitation Wisdom crying out. And as we learned last summer, wisdom is Jesus Christ personified. I'm sorry, Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom personified. All the Proverbs, Proverbs find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you want to see the fulfillment of the wise life, you just look at the life of Christ. He is crying out for all those who are simple to come in and to fear Him. But also, look at verse 13 of chapter 9. The woman folly or foolishness is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of town, calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten is secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there 
and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So Proverbs tells us there is a way to life and there is a way to death. There is a way to righteousness and there is a way to uh, wickedness and destruction. And each of us, as we walk, are faced with the decision, do we follow a path of wisdom, path of godliness, a path of Christ-likeness, by placing our faith and trust in Jesus and following that path, or do we pursue our flesh? You could maybe even summarize this from Galatians chapter 6. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For if you sow to your flesh, then from your flesh you reap destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, then from the Spirit you reap life. It's Galatians 6, 7 through 8. There are presented in the pages of the Bible two paths. One leading to life and one leading to death. And, and we are not in a river, lazy river kind of inner tube that just randomly picks which path to go down. They are calling out to you and pressuring you to choose one or the other. And you will make a willful decision to pursue life in Christ or to pursue life in your flesh. There is a battle for your will. You remember what God said to Cain um, as he, his offering was rejected, right? Uh, he said, if you do well, then won't you be accepted? But if you don't, sin is crouching at your doorstep. And its desire is to master you, but you must overcome it. Cain had a decision before him, and he chose folly, foolishness. And that same decision is before you today. Whether you're facing a critical life choice like I was as an 18-year-old of what to do for college, or whether you're at a position where you're choosing a, a relationship, whether to get engaged or not to get engaged or to start to date somebody or to not to date that person or to make a career choice uh, or not, or whether to continue to walk uh, in faith or whether to abandon the faith. It's a much more relevant decision these, these days. A lot of people are walking away from the faith. Uh, a lot of people are walking away from church. There's never been an easier time for us to walk away from the gospel than there is right now. In many ways, we are now the away team in America. Where before, maybe 20 years or so ago, we felt like the home team. The, the culture was on our side to some degree and looked favorably on Christ's followers. It's not that way today. There's never been an easier time for you to walk away from faith in Jesus. But I would tell you here and now, based on Scripture and based on Proverbs, that there is a way of foolishness that you can follow, and there is a way of life that you can follow. And those two are diametrically opposed to one another. So when you read through Proverbs, you need to understand that there is a battle of two paths. And right living, wisdom living, tells you to follow Jesus Christ closely. Let me give you one other key to understanding how to read Proverbs. Um, it's defined, last year we defined it as uh, skillful living. Wisdom is defined as skillful living. And it's much more than just knowledge, right? You can think, well, I'll, I'll just memorize the Proverbs and then 
just do uh, exactly what they say just by sheer knowledge and willpower. I'll just sort of gut it out and live a wise life. But, but then you remember there's passages that say, um, uh, rebuke a mocker, or he'll be right in his own eyes. And then you think, okay, so I should rebuke a mocker. And then right after that is another verse that says, don't ever rebuke a mocker or, or uh, you know, you'll fall into his trap. So, so wisdom is not just knowledge. It, it requires some sort of discernment and leadership um, that, you're, that you understand what to do in the right time at the right way. So, so wisdom is skillful living. It's defined, the same word chokmah uh, is defined in Exodus 28.3 as those who are skillful. God even says, tell those who are skillful, that's the same word for wisdom, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. Same word, wisdom and skill, used interchangeably in Exodus as well as in wisdom literature, that we should be skilled and discerning at living. And the way that begins, according to Proverbs 1.7, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that, that is equivalent to salvation in the New Testament. Living a godly life, a, a life of wisdom, requires walking and abiding in Christ Jesus. Um, before we get into chapter 10, let me just give you four quick lenses through which we should read Proverbs today. Four lenses through which you and I should read Proverbs today. Um, one is you should attempt to see Jesus in Proverbs. Um, Dan and John Aiken uh, in their exposition commentary, say the key to understanding Proverbs is that we must view them in light of Christ and eternity. We must view them in light of Christ and eternity. Um, we often come to this book with a very self-centered mindset. What do I need to know? What do I need to lead? I need information for myself, and I need information to make a good decision. But a first step would be to look at the book of Proverbs and say, how does this find fulfillment in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ? In what way did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? Look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Instead of first looking at how does that apply to me, first say, how did Jesus fulfill this proverb? Where do we see this in the life of Christ? Jesus always pleased his Father. God the Father, even at Jesus' baptism, what did he say? This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And so if a, a wise son makes a glad father, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that. So when you're reading Proverbs, first look to Jesus Christ and say, how does this find fulfillment in the person and ministry of Jesus? Ask, how does Jesus fulfill the wisdom described here? Or how does he defy the foolishness described? That simple exercise, if you add that to reading Proverbs, will counter your tendency just to read through Sometimes we just read the book with just me, 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 right? What does this say for me? What do I, and we'll walk away from a passage and say, well, I, I just wasn't fed and it didn't really speak to me or, or this, this word is kind of dry. Listen, we have a very selfish way of reading Scripture. And Scripture is, first of all, meant to reveal Jesus Christ. 
And so if you skip that step and you're just looking through the book to say, what, what's good for me, what's good for me, then you're missing an entire step in the hermeneutical process. The entire step uh, to say, how does God make himself known? How does he reveal himself to us through scripture? And then based on who he is, then in light of that, what does it say about me and how do I apply this? That's the right order. But if you order it wrongly, you're going to find yourself only reading the things that you like in the Bible, right? You find yourself dwelling in passages that, uh, you know, that's why I struggle with some of those verse of the day emails or posts because it's just somebody mining through and saying, oh, this is a good verse. I like this one. And it's very me-centered. And if we approach Scripture with a me-centered approach, then we're approaching it wrongly. A second lens by which to read Proverbs is to understand that it is for sanctification not for salvation. It's for sanctification, not for salvation. What does that mean? Sanctification is the process by which a Christ follower grows in Christ-likeness. It's a lifelong process of you growing and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the term sanctification. But if you read Proverbs or if you read any scripture as a means to an end for salvation, I'm, I'm really referring to like a works-based salvation, a salvation that says, if I do this, then God will love me and I'll be acceptable to him. If I, uh, you know, if I avoid um, greed and temptation and if I avoid lust and, and, and all those things that Proverbs describes, then God will love me and accept me, then you're reading it wrongly. The Proverbs are not for salvation, they make you wise for salvation, Paul told Timothy. The scriptures make you wise for salvation, but they don't make you uh, pleasing to God. Jesus Christ is the basis by which God accepts you or rejects you. Does that make sense? We don't do this as a works-based, if I put this into practice, then God will love me. Now, listen, God loves you based on what you do with his son, Jesus Christ, primarily. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he regenerates you. You're born again, as he said to Nicodemus in John 3. He fills you with his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, like it says in Ephesians 1. And then once you're saved and regenerate, he puts you on a path of sanctification. You're already accepted. John 10, uh, you're in his hand and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You do not walk with God on a performance-based, if I do this, he'll be pleasing, I'll be pleasing to him, and if I don't, I won't be. He, listen, he receives you based on what you do with his son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for you. If you reject Jesus, then you reject the way of wisdom. If you receive Jesus, then you are on that path by faith and repentance. I just want to make sure that's very clear. Proverbs, read them for sanctification, not for salvation. A third lens by which you should read Proverbs. Now, number one is to see Jesus in there primarily. Number two, for sanctification. Number three, for diagnosis and prayer. See, if I went to a doctor and I said, I'm having these symptoms, uh, he would say, well, based on your symptoms and based on everything that you're telling me and what you're going through, let me give you a diagnosis of what's going on in your life. And if you approach Proverbs in a similar way, Proverbs, you'll often find 
This is true of Scripture, not just for Proverbs. You often find the Scripture reads you more than you read it, right? Have you ever um, read through a passage and you thought, oh, that hits close to home. I mean, that's a bullseye right there. That, that hurts a little bit. Uh, for example, when I read Proverbs ten nineteen, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. If anybody struggles with words, Using too many, using the wrong ones, speaking first and thinking later, right? Well, some of these proverbs hit close to home and they, they diagnose who you are and, and they, they help you see what needs prayer and, and what maybe a focal point for your sanctification is. Read Proverbs in a diagnostic way by which the Holy Spirit reveals character defaults and deficiencies in your progress toward Christ-likeness. If there are other areas that you struggle with, anger or a quick temper, maybe you have a quick fuse and and one word or one gesture from another driver just sends you off, right? Proverbs will diagnose that quickly in your life. A hot-tempered man uh, and his ways lead to ruin. Use Proverbs in a way that reveal, the Holy Spirit is able to reveal character issues in your life and then use them as prayer points all right, Father, help me not to be a hot-tempered person or help me not to be a greedy person or Proverbs has so much to say about work and finances and laziness, character issues that we have, peer pressure. All right, the fourth lens and then we'll get into chapter 10. Um, Understand Proverbs in such a way as a father or a mother teaching their children. Uh, you might have read Proverbs and you think, well, this one has nothing to do with this one, and they're all just sort of disjointed and, and loosely connected, and, and it's hard to make an outline because it's not a narrative, it's not a story. Uh, there's often, you know, from verse to verse to verse to verse, it might just seem like they're just randomly thrown together. But a helpful way for you to read Proverbs might be to remember that this is Solomon teaching a son. This is a father writing to his son, and enforcing what we read in Deuteronomy 6. You remember Deuteronomy 6? It's often said that this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, uh, quoted by faithful Jews regularly. It's called the Shema. Shema means hear, and that's how Deuteronomy 6 starts in 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then we know verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them to your children when you rise up and when you sit down, when you walk by the way, and when you sit in your house, you shall teach them. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's that describing? That's describing a parent's obligation to teach their children as they go through life. As you wake up, as you eat breakfast, as you go to work, as you get ready, as you're driving along the way. And isn't this sort of like life for all of us? You see something and it's a situational opportunity Son, did you see that? Let me tell you what uh, this means biblically. Or did you see this example in this news story? Let me tell you about that. Or or here's an accident. This gives us an opportunity to pray. Or all these sort of situations that crop up in our day-to-day lives. Proverbs almost mimics that. As you read through Proverbs, you can imagine a father just teaching his son as situations arise. 
I hope those are helpful to you. Uh, We'll reinforce them through the rest of the summer as we continue to walk through it. But for now, let's get into chapter 10 and, um, and, and understand what Proverbs 10 is describing. Proverbs 10 mainly contrasts the two ways or two paths that we've already seen so far. There's a way of righteousness and there is a way of wickedness. And we're really only going to be able to um, read these Proverbs in chapter 10. And I'll make a few comments about a few of them. Um, There's 32 of them in chapter 10. But I have, um, I've bundled them into three categories. So we'll read through and I'll skip around a little bit and make just a little bit of uh, commentary and summary about some of them. Um, So let's get into, um, let's get into the text here. Um, let me say one other note before we get in. I'm sorry, I keep building that up and then, <laughs> sorry. Um, as you walk through chapter 10, as we do this together, I want you to take note of any particular one that just hits bullseye. I mean, if there's just one that, that, that the Lord is just poking you with that happens to fit, here's what I want you to do with that verse. I want you to take note of which one it is. Uh, I want you to commit it to memory. Uh, if you don't carry three by five cards, um, um, I use an app uh, from John Piper. It's uh, um, a f- called Fighter Verses, and I can highlight a verse, and then uh, regularly it, I'll get a notification reminding me to to review those verses. I have a dozen or so on my computer monitor and stacks of three by five cards just from men who have taught me how to memorize scripture. Um, as you walk through chapter 10, take note of the one that is particularly uh, hitting where the Lord might be speaking to you. Commit it to memory and then commit to praying that verse so that you might see progress in your sanctification and then look for examples of it in Jesus's life and ministry. All right, does that make sense? You know what I want you to do? Take note of the one, memorize it, meditate on it, and then pray it, and then look for its fulfillment in Jesus's life. All right, so the first bundle of verses um, that I've packed together, I, I'm going to call this bundle um, Life Summary Verses or Character Statements. Um, they're, they're summarizing a life or a person's character. I would, I would describe these verses as something that you would want somebody to say about you um, at your retirement celebration. Well, when I know this person, I know them to be blank. Or a birthday, you know, those rare occasions that somebody honors you, a graduation, a retirement, a birthday, a, an anniversary, um, God forbid, at your funeral, um, you know, in some way you want these people um, to give this character statement about you. That's what I would bundle these first verses we're going to look at. They are 179, 12, and then 23 through 30. You don't have to remember that. We'll get into them in a minute. But these are your character witness verses. You're all very familiar uh, with criminal courts. This is some of the most 
popular TV shows of the last 20 years are Law and Order and Dateline in 2020. All of you know the, the, the spouse is the one who typically does it, right? We're experts at criminal stuff because we see this all the time. Uh, and even in uh, recent court cases, you'll see people coming on stage, and there are generally uh, two types of witnesses in a case. An, an eyewitness person who saw what happened or heard something that happened, or a character witness. The character witness is someone who knows the defendant well. This person testifies as to the defendant's good character traits. The testimony provided by a character witness is called character evidence, and it is legally admissible. The court has to listen. The jury has to listen to somebody who gives a character witness and, and can see it as evidence. It is admissible and allowed in court, but it has to be based on the personal knowledge of a person. You can't just testify that you know somebody to be a good person if you're not daily or regularly around them. This speaks to your character. This speaks to your character. And that's what these 10 or so verses describe. In a discipleship book we go through, there's a poem called For Want of a Nail. For Want of a Nail. It's a nursery rhyme uh, dating back to the 14th century. And it says, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. That's a horseshoe. So if there's not enough nails, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. Showing you the importance of every little thing that contributes to the total effort in warfare. And we can take that illustration to understand in the Christian life that every thought you think becomes an action. And every action that you indulge in repeatedly becomes a habit. And every habit that you practice over a period of time directly influences your character. And so if your character isn't being built, being built thought by thought, then for want of a thought, the battle could be lost completely. So what are these positive character traits? Look at, look at verse 1, chapter 10. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And this is the nature of Proverbs. It doesn't mean that a wise son doesn't also make his mom happy. And it doesn't mean that a foolish son also makes his um, dad miserable. And it doesn't just mean a son. It could mean a daughter as well. But the, the character issue is that we want a life determined by wisdom. Listen, all of you want wisdom. There's not a single person in the room that just says, I just want to be a fool forever. Um, all of us want Wisdom, And all of us want people to say he was very skilled at the way he lived his life. Verse 7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. 
Verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but the one who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Verse 23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Verse 24, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Verse 25, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. It reminds us of Jesus' parable in Matthew 7, after giving the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man builds his house where? On the rocks, right? And the one who doesn't put his words into practice builds his house on sand. And when the storm crashes and the waves crash against it, it is gone. Verse 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Verse 29, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. Verse 30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. One other thing that you should know about Proverbs, uh, Mark Dever says that all Proverbs are true. Some are true immediately, some are true eternally, which is helpful to us because you read you know, Proverbs that don't seem to come true in our lifetime. So when it says the righteous will never be removed, it doesn't mean that righteous people won't die. It just means that they won't die eternally because they're in Christ. But the wicked will not dwell in the land. Well, certainly you could see examples of wicked people dwelling in a land. So some Proverbs find their ultimate fulfillment in eternity. How is your character? If somebody had to speak at your funeral today, what would they say about you? Those who are closest to you, about your private life, about your private habits. How does that measure up in your goal to walk with Christ? Let's move on to the second bundle. Uh, the second bundle are work and wages. Work and wages. And I've subcategorized work and wages into um, three categories. Righteousness, laziness, and security. We'll start with righteousness. Those who are righteous are those who have already been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, um, he sees Jesus. Think of an umbrella. When God looks down, the righteousness of Christ fully covers you. And so when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, you are declared righteous before him, legally righteous. All right, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So in Christ, praise God, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus Christ. So those who are righteous have given their life to Christ and their life is now a reflection of righteousness. As you walk, people see in you righteousness. So verse 2, how does that translate to your work? Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 
speaks to your integrity in the way you make money. You see, if you're righteous, you declare and pay your taxes. If you're wicked in the sense that you're trying to gain money by cheating the governmental systems or the money that you owe, carrying debt, those kinds of things, it demonstrates treasure gained by wickedness. Don't profit a person. But righteousness delivers from death. Verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Verse 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life, and the gain of the wicked leads to sin. Verse 16 speaks to the end result of the resources that God has given you. Every one of you will have a certain amount of money passed through your hands. Not a single one of you will take anything with you when you die. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty clear. I read about this week a, uh, a culture that tapes um, treasures to those who are dying and puts them in their casket with them. Um, how foolish to think that we could take anything with us. Resources will pass through your hands. Pass through your hands. You'll receive a paycheck and you'll pass it on in some way. What's the end result of your disposable income? Does it lead to life? The wages of the righteous leads to life and the gain of the wicked to sin. Some people that I look up to most in my Christian life have incrementally increased their tithe and their gifts. They tithe to their church, and then it's their joy to fund missionaries and to fund efforts of the gospel around the world. That is wages resulting in life. I I know just a couple of people who are close to being reverse tithers, living off 10% of what they owe, uh, uh, of what they make, and tithing 90% uh, toward kingdom causes. That is a wage of righteousness leading to life while the gain of the wicked leads to sin. Uh, Verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The second subcategory of work and wages is laziness. And uh, buckle up, I mean, this is going to hurt. Laziness is a a weakness for me as well. Um, Tim Keller, in one of his books, describes deep idols, um, that all sin results in idolatry, and that there are really just four or five main categories of idolatry. For me, one of those deep idols that I tend to find myself tempted with is comfort. Finding comfort in something or in um, you know, taking an afternoon off or in doing something like that. Comfort is a, a difficult thing for me. And laziness um, is one of those orbiting temptations all around me. I remember a guy named Danny uh, was a, a uh, supervisor at the golf course that I worked at growing up. And I did not like when Danny came around uh, because Danny held me accountable. He's an older guy, uh, really the dad of my friend Jade. And, um, and the first interaction I had with Danny was uh, I was sent on an errand from the um, sixth hole where the maintenance barn was um, all the way to the other side of the uh, um, golf course where the 12th hole was. And if I timed it right, I knew that I could waste about an hour. 
<laughs> of you know stopping at the Shake Shack or whatever it was and stopping at this place. And then uh, we, we, I made a lot of stops along the way. And, and so by the time I got there and got back, um, Danny was waiting on me and, and he said, um, what took you so long? I said, well, there's just a lot of, you know, green traffic out there. A lot of people on the golf course today it just took me a while. I didn't want to interrupt golf. He said, in colorful language that I can't repeat in here, that's not true. Um, he said, I followed you, and I saw you where you went on the second hole. I saw you when you parked in the trees on the fifth hole. I saw you when you stopped and talked to the girl at the barn, you know, there for a little while at the, uh, the halfway hut. I watched you the entire time, and I did not like Danny uh, from that point forward, but... <laughs> Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard who sends him. That's verse 26. You ever been around a campfire and the smoke just always follows you? And you're, you, there's always one guy at the fire pit that the smoke is just, wherever you rotate around, it's going to get in your eyes. It's so annoying. That's how I was to Danny, according to verse 26. Like smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy person to those who send him. Verse 5, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is the son who brings shame. Verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Listen, you'll, you'll see in Jesus' life and ministry, he always stayed on task, and he was always diligent, constantly working toward his mission. You will never hear laziness in Jesus in the same description, ever. And so it should be for you and I. The last wealth and wages work category is security. Verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Verse 15, um, <clears throat> at first glance, um, seems apparent, but also seems like it doesn't really belong in the Bible, right? A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Um, the ESV study Bible, I'm just going to quote here, says, the point of this proverb is to invite reflection on the benefits of wealth versus the ruinous effects of poverty. Whereas wealth can be like a strong city, providing safety and resources and protection against misfortune, poverty leads only to ruin and thus should not be embraced out of laziness. Although there are benefits from wealth, however, it is a mistake, as shown elsewhere in Proverbs, to place one's trust in wealth rather than in the name of the Lord." For treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Proverbs 18, 10 through 11, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. But a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So there's a difference in having wealth and placing your trust in wealth for security. If at any moment the Lord were to strike your family poor, and you were to have no money, and maybe by injury or illness, you have no more means of making money, is your security in your wealth? Is that where you place your trust? In how much money is in your savings account, or your banking account, or your retirement account? It is not the place to put your trust. Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, Someone in the crowd told Jesus, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all sorts of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down all my barns and I'll build larger ones and there I will store all my grains and all my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's only wrong in where you place your trust and your security. And if your security is in wealth, then it's misplaced. Well, the final category, and we'll be, we'll be dismissed for today, is words. Words. Unfortunately, Proverbs has a lot to say about the way we talk. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, I outlined a a book um, based on all the words in Proverbs. And there's so many of them, it was enough to fill six chapters. There's so much to say about the words we use, but chapter 10 describes three types um, of speakers, babblers, destroyers, and blessers. I don't know if blessers is a verb. But just, I mean, just bear with my public education. Uh, James tells us a lot about words as well. The New Testament wisdom literature is the book of James. And James says this, not many of you in chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. We put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Even though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot, the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's a, that's a big statement about your tongue. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame their tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Proverbs is going to have a lot to say about words, so either skip the summer if you don't want to hear it, or every week when you come back, one of these chapters, there may even just be bundled a, a whole series over a two or three weeks about how to use our words wisely. But let's start here in chapter 10. 
There are two verses that describe how you receive words. Verses 8 and 17. Verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Receive commandments. Have you ever known someone who can't take a command? You tell somebody to do something, and even if they were intending to do it, <laughs> they won't do it just because you told them to do it. I was a UPS supervisor in Louisville, and uh, it was my job to oversee a crew of 10 or so guys and girls, um, and they would unload the planes at the beginning of the night, and they would unload the packages, and, and uh, they would reload them at the uh, early morning at the end of our shift. And there was one guy who was, by all accounts, better than me, smarter than me, more experienced than me, and, and even just about my age. And yet he was constantly, though he desired a promotion, never promoted. And I knew why immediately, because as I tried to be his supervisor, I would tell him to do something, and he just wouldn't do it. He would not take a commandment at all. And so one day, uh, during our shift, uh, I spent about an hour, and I looked through his employee file, and we were <clears throat> required to write up anybody that we, um, you know, if they had an issue. And so I looked at all of his write-ups. Pages and pages of write-ups. And I just took a yellow highlighter and I highlighted the same word. Failure to follow supervisor's instructions. Failure to follow supervisor's instructions. Over and over and over. I mean, pages worth. And I called him out of his uh, station. I said, Jared, I want you to come sit over here. Uh, I don't care about, I'll get in your station. I'll work and unload your box for you. But I want you to read these 28 pages and just summarize all the highlights. And so he sat over there and read through. And I said, at the end of it, after about 15 minutes, he came back over. I said, what was the common theme in your employee packet? Failure to follow supervisor's instructions, right? Just a horrible attitude. I said, listen, you're better than I am. You're more experienced than I am. There's no reason why you've been passed over five times for a promotion, except that you fail to follow instructions and commandments. What's, what's so important? Why does your pride tell you that, you, that this, these rules don't apply to you? I had another friend whose wife, he pulled up in a handicapped spot or a pregnant mother's spot and he parked there and put it in park and she said, you don't think the rules apply to you, do you? What is it about our pride that says, no one can tell me what to do? You see how arrogant you are when you fail to follow instructions and commandments? On the other hand, the wise of heart receives commandments. The wise of heart. The redeemed person working toward Christ-likeness. Can you think of a time when Jesus failed to follow supervisor instructions? Now he obeyed the Father completely and fully. Verse 17. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. So the one who hears instruction, receives it, that person is described as the person on the path to life, but the one who rejects reproof, that is when somebody corrects you in love. You know, the proverb says a friend um, 
the, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, right? So when a friend tells you something about your character or something about an issue and you reject it, you are not listening to wise instruction, not heeding instruction. Have you ever met somebody who is unteachable? I sent a group of people to a discipleship conference a decade ago. And they all came back and they all had learned so much from this. And one person in that group said, I don't know why I went. I already knew all that stuff. I'd been in that discipleship conference before. There are 70-year-old experts on disciple-making who are still in awe of the whole process of disciple-making who don't know it. But this 22-year-old person said, I already know all this. I don't, know why you, I don't even know why you sent me to this discipleship conference. It's such a waste of my time. I already knew all this. Have you ever met an unteachable person? Infuriating. Somebody who cuts you off. I already know. I know. I know. I know. I already know how to do that. I don't need your help. I don't want you, I don't want you to instruct me unteachable is a person who will always remain in their foolishness because they fail to they see themselves as the source of information and authority rather than the receiver of sort uh, of information another category of words is the uh, the um the babbler <laughs> three verses for babbling uh, it's literally foolish of lips it indicates a person who has no control over their mouth. No control. I, I, used, to, um, I used to tell uh, my kids, hey, pretend like there's a guard at the door of your mouth and just walks back and forth and tells some thoughts, no, you can't get out, right? And some thoughts, he says, yeah, you can come through. He's the filter for your mouth. Do you, does anybody have a filter, right? You know the guard. Some of you, your guard is uh, on vacation permanently, right? If you think it, it comes out your mouth. If it comes through your mind, you, you, you speak first and you think later. Uh, we call this emptying a file, right? If, if somebody um, knows something about a topic and you bring up the topic, it's like a librarian in their mind runs back to the files and says, I know something about um, uh, deep sea fishing. I'm just going to open the file and tell you everything I know about deep sea fishing. And then once their file is empty, they, they shut their mouth. <laughs> this sort of babbling... Right? Verse 8, the wise of heart receive commandments, but a babbling fool comes to ruin. Verse 10, whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool comes to ruin. Verse 19, the stinger for many of us. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Julie and I had a friend whose father-in-law, upon getting to know her for their engagement period, just said, you don't always have to tell people everything you know. Just a gentle pat, kick, pat, right? Just a gentle, just because you know it doesn't mean you have to say it. This was a person who just, everything they knew, wanted to appear wise and smart. Um, that's one category, the babbler. The second category of those who speak is a destroyer. The mouth of the wicked, verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Verse 18, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. 
Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. Let's look at the last quarter category quickly. It's blessing. Uh, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Verse 13, on the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. These two kinds of language, especially today on Father's Day, I mentioned it earlier, uh, just how many of us carry a wound by a word from a father, but also how many of us um, a gracious, life-giving word from a father goes far. You can remember something that your father might have said that was painful, hurtful. Maybe calling you worthless or a fool. What you say has the power to bring life and blessing or to destroy. James says it's a full poison. That the greatest evil James can imagine are the words that you use. Say, no, what about warfare and chemical warfare or abortion or all these things. James describes run-of-the-mill daily evil as you with your mouth. Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. James 1 says, be quick to Listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Listen, I want you to tune in to Proverbs when it comes to words. So that we can be a congregation of people who build each other up. Mutually encouraging each other and strengthening each other. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Until we all reach the attainment of the likeness of Christ Jesus. Do you remember that passage? What you say matters. How you receive words matters. And from Proverbs 10, I, I pray that God speaks to you about your character. I pray that He speaks to you about your work. And I pray that He speaks to you about your words. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word today. In so many ways, we fall short. We are a congregation of imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. If during this uh, time your word has convicted any of us, I pray that we might seek forgiveness and that we might seek sanctification. I pray that we might be a teachable people, those who heed instruction and receive commandment. I pray that we might be a people who speak words of life and blessing. I pray that we might be a people reflecting Jesus Christ. To the degree that we are living a wise life is to the degree that we are resembling Jesus. 
Would you chip away and change anything about us that doesn't immediately resemble Jesus? May we be a reflection of your glory to a lost and dying world and corporately together as a congregation. I pray that our community would would see these qualities in us, that we would together resemble Jesus. Would you mold us and make us so? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.